So Nick, my oral boards are nearly upon me. I'm going to be taking them in December. Man, Faye, I am feeling kind of lucky because mine are after yours in January, um, but the heat is starting to get turned up. How are you studying? So one of the ways that I'm studying um, is by going onto the OBG project and taking a look at their most up-to-date information to make sure that I am studied up on GYN because I don't practice GYN anymore. I'm going back through my bookshelf articles to take a look at some of those high yield topics from GYN that I just don't remember. Um, but they've also got a ton of great other information regarding obstetrics, certainly, um, but then even just professionalism things um, and life as a physician. Yeah, absolutely. And so you don't need to just be studying for your oral boards to appreciate and use OBG Project. You can also use it if you are a resident or an attending and you're just studying up to make sure that you are practicing um, good OBGYN. You can also join us to get OBG first and make your very own bookshelf and go back to those resources that you like. And if you are a fourth year resident, you can actually sign up for one whole year free. Head on over to our website, check out the sidebar, figure out how you can get OBG first for a whole year, absolutely free. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs over, over Coffee. coffee. All right, so Faye, we're going to take a trip down memory lane for an update today. Can you believe it was actually two years ago in November 2019 when we last talked about preventing preterm birth? Wow, that was like pre-COVID and everything. I Right? And so, you know, a lot has actually changed in that two years. There's a whole new practice bulletin. Back then we were talking about like the prolonged trial had just gotten released and there were like some conflict and controversy, but now actually the dust is kind of settled. And so um, what I hope to do today is just really talk back through preventing preterm birth with this new lens. Um, so what are our learning objectives today? Sure. So our learning objectives today, we are going to review the risk factors and background data regarding preterm birth. We're going to discuss screening strategies for preterm birth to identify those most at risk. And finally, we're going to familiarize ourselves with the evidence for varying interventions given a variety of clinical scenarios. So for example, things like singleton without a history of preterm birth, singleton with history of preterm birth, and even multiple gestation. All right. So kick us off, Nick. Why do we care about preterm birth? Yeah, so just again as a refresher from our last podcast, preterm birth is super common. Um, over 10% of newborns in the United States are born prematurely, and this accounts for over 75% of perinatal mortality and over 50% of long-term neonatal morbidity and then the associated costs of that. And despite all of the research and things that have been poured into preventing preterm birth, Preterm birth rates are actually increasing in the United States from 2007 to most recently in 2019 at around that 10% range. This has been driven primarily by an increase in late preterm birth in that 34 to 36 week range. Um, and fortunately, the rates of early preterm birth, which in this study was defined as less than 34 weeks, have been largely changed since about 2014, with that rate sitting at about 2.8%. Other reasons to care about preterm birth is that it's a story of disparity as well. Um, it, 
white women have about a 9.3% rate of preterm birth in the United States versus about a 10% rate for Hispanic women. For non-Hispanic black women, the rate jumps to 14.4%. For Alaska um, natives or American Indian patients, the rate is about 11.5%. And for Hawaiian and Pacific Islander patients, 11.8%. Non-Hispanic black women also have a disproportionately higher rate of those early preterm births under 34 weeks, about 5% versus 2.7% as the overall rate. And then finally, what we should probably just clarify too is that preterm birth is not just spontaneous preterm birth, so that's what we're going to be focusing our talk on today. 50% of preterm birth follows preterm labor, but about 25% follows PPROM, and 25% fall into what we would call intentional medically indicated preterm birth for fetal or maternal indications. So that's a lot of the background, and again, we should care because it's pretty common, um, and obviously patients want to try and avoid it. Faye, let's review some risk factors, though, for preterm birth. Sure. So some of the things that we like to think about are a prior history. Just like anything in OBGYN, if you have a history of something, you're more likely for that to happen again. A history of a prior spontaneous preterm birth at less than 34 weeks has about a 35% recurrence risk. And the number of prior preterm births and the degree of prematurity significantly affect this risk. Um, However, if you have a preterm birth followed by a term birth, your risk lowers. And if you have a twin preterm birth, you still have an overall higher risk for preterm birth in a subsequent singleton gestation and as high as 40% if the twins are born before 30 weeks. Other things that we think about are stuff like bacterial vaginosis, which increases your risk of spontaneous preterm births twofold, but treatment really hasn't been demonstrated consistently to reduce it. We also think about UTIs in pregnancy. There's some conflicting data from the Cochrane reviews looking at the risk of asymptomatic bacteria or symptomatic UTIs, um, but it's still prudent to treat because of the risk of pyelonephritis, as we've discussed in our previous episodes. Also, we think about periodontal disease, where there's some conflicting results of risk and association. History of prior DNC slightly increases your risk in a 21-study meta-analysis of 2 million women, though the mechanism is uncertain. And then multiple gestation definitely increases your risk. The preterm birth rate in twins is 60.3%, with 19.5% born before 34 weeks. Triplets? 98% of them are born preterm wow. and 82% of them are born before 34 weeks. I know. Some other things to think about, short cervical length. Um, we know that a transvaginal short cervix of less than 25 millimeters between 16 to 24 weeks is associated with a higher risk of preterm birth in a variety of screen populations. And also we sometimes think about a history of a cervical colonization. There's some inconsistent data regarding risk, though likely there's pronounced risk if there's a short interval from colonization to conception or if the excision is greater than 15 millimeters deep. What are some other risks that potentially could be modifiable, Nick? Yeah, so one of the biggest ones that we think about is tobacco use. Um, and this has been proven in multiple studies, theorized in part because of like vasoconstriction, hypoxic ischemic pathways um, that may predispose to just placental badness and preterm birth. Other modifiable risks can include low maternal pre-pregnancy weight, specifically a BMI of under 18.5. 
There's some association with a short interpregnancy interval under 18 months with preterm birth risk, though again, conflicting data on that and mostly observational studies. And then unintended pregnancy is also a consideration for modifiable risk. Just kind of important for those last two and sort of, I guess, converse supporting data for those associations is that there is some observational data that points to increased access to long-acting reversible contraception and family planning services is associated with a lower risk of preterm birth overall. The last one that kind of is addressed in the practice bulletin that we'll address here too is the risk factor of race. We mentioned that preterm birth is a disparate um, health outcome. Um, but we have discussed on the show before that race is a social construct rather than a biological one. And so when you see race as a risk factor, think that you need to think harder about why that might be. ACOG actually in this practice bulletin states that chronic stress related to exposure to racism actually is a potential explanation for the disparate rate of preterm birth. Social and economic disadvantage are persistently associated with increased risk of preterm birth with some factors that have been associated including lower educational attainment, residents in particular zip codes, regions, or states with economic disadvantage, um, as well as lack of access to prenatal care. There's a lot more work that's needed in evaluating and exploring these mechanisms. More work is desperately needed in evaluating ways to correct inequity. Um, so a call to action for any of you prematurity researchers out there. So Faye, I think that pretty well covers the background and the risk factors. Let's get to the meat of exactly how we're going to screen for risk for preterm birth and what we can do about it. First of all, we have to identify patients who may benefit from intervention. And a lot of things have been tried. Um, things like fetal fibronectin assay. In asymptomatic patients, it really hasn't been shown to be helpful given its very low positive predictive value. There have also been other things like home uterine contraction monitors. And there's ongoing research into things like biomarkers, the microbiome of the vagina, cervical texture, genetic associations. The preterm birth world is rich for all of you bright research minds out there. The best and most important screening strategy that we've identified is the transvaginal cervical length screening in the second trimester between 16 to 24 weeks. Transvaginal cervical length beyond 24 weeks is less predictive overall. We do have a recommendation for universal assessment of the cervix at the time of the anatomy ultrasound, with a transvaginal ultrasound then performed if suspicious. So a transabdominal ultrasound under 36 millimeters identifies 96% of patients with a transvaginal cervical length under 25 millimeters, and 100% of patients with a transvaginal cervical length of 20 millimeters or less. So this universal assessment of length outright with the transvaginal um, cervical length is debated, though the cervix should at least be visualized to assess for previa, and a transabdominal cervical length is a reasonable first screen. The next step then is to remember, you know, what are the lengths of cervices that we should know? Compared to the old guideline, ACOG has simplified things in this document, and there's two primary lengths to remember, both transvaginally assessed. The first is 25 millimeters, and the second is 10 millimeters. Then there's a few major interventions that can be considered. Progesterone, either vaginally or intramuscularly in the form of 17 OHP. They also talk about cerclage and finally pessary. And the recommendations and intervention options vary by the history clinical scenario of the patient. And we'll put table one from that practice bulletin into our website so you'll be able to review it all together.
So let's go through this table, Nick, because it's rich with a lot of information. Um, so tell me first about the singleton pregnancy with no prior history of preterm birth. Yeah, so this is the patient who you presume, right, has no other particular risk factors like their first pregnancy or something, and they, again, no prior history of preterm birth, be like your lowest risk category. So you're getting your cervical length screening as part of just a routine anatomy scan, and up, let's say that you identify a patient with a shortened cervix under 25 millimeters. In this case, the first thing that you think about is, is vaginal progesterone. The dose of vaginal progesterone is typically 200 mg micronized um, from the time of diagnosis until about 34 to 37 weeks gestation. And that varies by institutional practice and by what trial you read truthfully. And so Nick, this is different from before, right? Because in the previous practice bulletin, we were told to remember 20 millimeters for singleton pregnancy with no prior preterm birth. That's right, Faye. Now we've actually increased the threshold and it's 25 millimeters that we're looking for. With respect to the effects of vaginal progesterone, multiple trials have demonstrated in this context a lowered risk of early preterm birth that is, again, under 34 weeks, and that risk reduction is actually about 50%, so pretty significant. Um, there was a big meta-analysis of progesterones overall called the optimum meta-analysis, and this one demonstrated that vaginal progesterone reduced risk of spontaneous preterm birth prior to 34 weeks by about 40% in this population, with a number needed to treat of 14 patients to prevent one spontaneous preterm birth before 34 weeks. So pretty remarkable with respect yeah. to an intervention. I love all these names of these trials. Optimum, Epic. No, we're going to aspire to that one day, Faye. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's get back on track. So vaginal progesterone under 25 millimeters sounds like a pretty good story. Well, if you gave it vaginally, what about intramuscular? Could you consider that? And there are very few trials of intramuscular progesterone in this singleton, no prior preterm birth history. Um, there are only a couple of small direct trials that exist, and they generally have not found benefit. And so pretty definitively, ACOG says not recommended in this population outside of just experiments. Um, exam indicated surclage is the next thing that you might think about that, again, is pretty unchanged from prior guidelines. So exam indicated meaning that there was some sort of painless cervical dilation prior to 24 weeks. And the key word there is dilation, right? When we talk about ultrasound indicated cerclage in a moment, um, that's the big difference here. So rescue or exam indicated cerclage implies cervical dilation. This has pretty good evidence associated with it. It's associated with pregnancy prolongation by about 34 days versus no cerclage, an increased neonatal survival and a meta-analysis of multiple study types. You may see, depending on where you are, a difference in practice, like some folks might perform amniocentesis prior to rescue cerclages um, to assess for infection pre-procedure, and there's really only limited data in that regard. You may also hear folks use antibiotics and or tocolytics prior to rescue cerclage placement, and there actually is a great randomized trial that came out of Northwestern um, using perioperative antibiotics and indomethacin that demonstrated improved pregnancy lengths and rescue cerclages that received the medication, um, but did not find a difference ultimately in neonatal outcomes overall, good or bad. The kind of takeaway there from ACOG says it's reasonable to consider those things to potentially prolong pregnancy. 
And then we can't talk about indications without contraindications too for rescue cerclage. So you shouldn't put a cerclage in someone who has suspected PPROM, a suspected infection, someone who you're expecting is like in preterm labor or someone who's actively bleeding, or if there's a fetal demise or some sort of anomaly that's incompatible with life. Um, so again, those are the things to think about with not putting in a rescue cerclage. Um, but otherwise, in the singleton without a prior history, that painlessly dilated cervix is a reasonable thing. Now perk your ears up here because differently now there actually is ultrasound indicated cerclage available for singletons without prior history of preterm birth. And we'll go through the data because it's a little bit different, um, but we'll kind of talk about it because it's a new recommendation from ACOG. So again, remember ultrasound indicated cerclage implies cervical shortening without dilation prior to 24 weeks. And a prior ACOG recommendation was that in the singleton pregnancy without a prior history of preterm birth, this was not a recommendation in this population. The only folks you were putting cerclages in with singletons, no prior history, was a rescue cerclage. But now ACOG says that there's a possibility of benefit with extreme cervical shortening if the cervix is under 10 millimeters. This is based on a subgroup analysis of 126 patients that came out of a meta-analysis of five randomized trials. Say that five times fast. <laughs> um, in that subgroup analysis of a meta-analysis, in folks who had a cervical length under 25 with, again, no prior history of preterm birth, cerclage didn't seem to reduce the risk of preterm birth. But with a cervical length under 10, cerclage reduced the risk of preterm birth less than 35 weeks at a clip of 39.5% versus 58%. Importantly, none of these patients in this trial were on vaginal progesterone, nor were there any trials comparing vaginal progesterone to cerclage in this population or the combined effect of the two. So again, with cervical shortening, typically you think about vaginal progesterone, right? But with extreme cervical shortening, ACOG essentially says you can consider cerclage and doesn't make comment about the use of vaginal progesterone together or if you should pick one or the other in a particular clinical scenario. Um, so interesting stuff, Faye, that's kind of changed. Um, the last thing that we'll talk about in this singleton without prior history of preterm birth category is pessaries. Again, you may or may not have experience with pessaries depending on where you practice. Again, with Eurogyne, you probably have seen a pessary before, but a cervical pessary is kind of like a ring-shaped structure that kind of compresses, elevates, and posteriorly rotates the cervix. Trials in this population have not demonstrated efficacy of the pessary in those, again, with a short cervix alone or in combination with vaginal progesterone, um, and so pessaries are not recommended in this population. All right, Faye, so I think now we're going to move to those with a prior history of preterm birth, which is a different kind of risk population. Yeah, so for simplicity's sake, we're only just going to talk about spontaneous prior preterm birth. So for example, in someone who's had a medically indicated preterm delivery at 34 weeks for like severe preeclampsia, they do not qualify. In terms of cervical length screening, in addition to the usual screen in patients with a prior preterm birth history, serial cervical length assessment have 
been studied. A transvaginal cervical length under 25 millimeters before 24 weeks has a sensitivity of 65% for preterm birth under 35 weeks, a positive predictive value of 33%, and a negative predictive value of 92%. However, sensitivity and positive predictive value is similar for just risk factor of prior preterm birth. And many studies have assessed the utility of cervical length screening without definitive data to guide frequency or the schedule of assessment. So this is usually dependent on your institution. Most protocols will perform screening starting at 16 weeks and repeat every one to four weeks, depending on where you are, through 24 weeks. Because treatment is available for short cervixes. For example, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, an ultrasound-indicated cerclage. Even with absence of superb data, serial screening is reasonable to perform. So now we'll talk about some of the things that we could do. The first is I am progesterone because this is something that we used to always do for our patients who had a preterm birth. We talked a little bit about this controversy in our previous podcast with the MEES trial and the prolonged trial. And just to refresh our memories, remember the MEES trial was in 2003. It was a randomized controlled trial of 463 patients who received either iron progesterone or the placebo. And this study showed a reduced risk of preterm birth before 35 weeks by about 33%. Overall, it was considered to be a higher risk population than the prolonged trial, which came along later. And from this trial, we then began to prescribe 17-OHP to our patients who have a history of a preterm birth who are currently pregnant. The prolonged trial came out in 2019 and was a randomized controlled trial of 1,740 patients, and this showed no difference in preterm birth before 35 weeks um, and no difference in neonatal outcomes in people who were randomized to ion progesterone versus placebo. And just to kind of plug this in here, because you may have seen the ads for this, there are sub-Q progesterone formulations that are also available, but there's no direct evidence to support its efficacy versus IM or other formulations. In this interim of all of this going on, ACOG and SMFM have released statements supporting shared decision-making and patient preference in using progesterone supplementations, either IM or vaginal, given this mixed evidence that we have. Moving on to vaginal progesterone, we're going to talk about this in comparison to nothing or just placebo versus 17 OHP. In regards to vaginal progesterone compared to placebo, there have been three blind and randomized controlled trials that demonstrated no benefit in reducing recurrent preterm birth. However, there was a five-trial meta-analysis looking at vaginal progesterone for use in short cervix with a history of spontaneous preterm birth, which showed a reduction of preterm birth by about 40%. In terms of comparing vaginal progesterone with 17-OHP, there was a meta-analysis of three trials um, that showed patients receiving vaginal progesterone had a lower risk of preterm birth before 34 weeks, though the trials were not blinded and excluded patients with a short cervix. There's also a meta-analysis of multiple progesterone supplementation strategies that suggested more robust evidence for VAGP in preventing preterm birth prior to 34 weeks. These also included largely heterogeneous trials with a variety of risk factors present, um, which can somewhat limit the outright applicability. There are also some upcoming trials planned to further directly compare vaginal to IM progesterone for this population, so stay tuned. All right, so we've talked a lot about progesterone, so let's move on to the good old cerclage. The first thing to talk about is the history-indicated cerclage. So a history-indicated cerclage is indicated in those with a prior spontaneous preterm birth due to painless cervical dilation in the second trimester without an identified etiology, like abruption, 
or in those who have cerclages in prior pregnancies, and they can be placed in early second trimester between the weeks of 12 to 14 weeks with good effect. Unfortunately, sometimes it's very difficult to figure out if someone actually has painless cervical dilation versus preterm labor. And this is where the ultrasound-indicated cerclage comes in. So a five-trial meta-analysis demonstrated that in those with the prior spontaneous preterm birth and a cervical length of less than 25 millimeters prior to 24 weeks, a cerclage reduces the rate of preterm birth by about 35%. It's unknown if progesterone supplementation may augment this effect at all, and there are no trials comparing cerclage to vaginal progesterone alone, as well as cerclage with vaginal progesterone in this population. There are some ways to do some indirect comparisons between trials, and when this was performed, the effect size observed seemed to be similar between VAGP and cerclage. Therefore, ACOG states that cerclage or VAGP are acceptable options in those with a prior spontaneous preterm birth and short cervix, and states that cerclage may be offered in addition to continuation of progesterone. All right, and the last thing is, of course, that good old pessary, and evidence really hasn't demonstrated any efficacy of pessary use alone, so don't do this. All right, Nick, so I think we're probably getting into a little bit more of the controversial part of this topic, which is multifetal gestations. Like, what do you do? Yeah, right. So I think, again, if you're in residency right now, depending on where you are, you are probably told, like, never put a cerclage in twins, or it's very reasonable to put a cerclage in twins, or something along those lines, right? Like, it seems to be a very divided camp. Um, But ACOG in this update to the bulletin has done a nice job in kind of reviewing some of the evidence regarding prevention of preterm birth with multifetal gestations. So let's break it down the same way that we did for the singleton. So let's start with cervical length screening. Um, Multifetal pregnancies are generally going to have a shorter cervical length in the second trimester, but short cervix still remains an effective predictor of early preterm birth. Faye talked about some of those positive predictive values earlier. Um, With twins and multi-fetal gestations, it gets even better, actually. So if you have a transvaginal ultrasound under 25 millimeters at 20 to 24 weeks, this has a positive predictive value of 75.5% for delivery prior to 37 weeks and 25.8% for delivery before 28 weeks. Um, In a separate analysis, a transvaginal cervical length of under 20 had a positive predictive value of almost 62% before 34 weeks. There's not a lot of data regarding optimal screening strategies as we talked about with the singletons who had a prior history of preterm birth and less consensus regarding the effectiveness ultimately of intervention to act upon if you see a shortened cervix. So serial screening is not necessarily recommended, though it probably falls in line with what your institution's practice is with whether people will do a cerclage or offer some sort of intervention or not. Again, the rationale here is that by doing a screening test, you should have some sort of intervention to offer behind it. So if you're going to do a cerclage or would do a cerclage, you should do the cervical length screening. If you're not going to do a cerclage, no way, no how, then there's probably no point in doing the cervical length screening. Um, That single screen at the anatomy scan should still be performed at the minimum as it is with singleton gestations. All right, so now we'll move to progesterones. We're going to switch up and talk about intramuscular progesterone first. So in IM progesterone, there's actually a trial of 661 twin pregnancies versus placebo, um, and 17P didn't demonstrate any benefit here. There's actually a Cochrane review of randomized trial of twin pregnancies that actually has found a slight 
increased risk of preterm birth before 34 weeks with the addition of 17 progesterone, though there was no difference in perinatal outcomes. So read into that what you will. And those are the prior spontaneous preterm birth history and subsequent twin pregnancy. There's a small 66 patient trial that showed fewer deliveries prior to 34 weeks, but mean gestational length overall didn't differ and there was no significant difference in neonatal outcomes. The bottom line here is that you can consider progesterone, intramuscular progesterone, and those with a prior history of spontaneous preterm birth, um, but this is not for use in those without a prior history of spontaneous preterm birth. Vaginal progesterone in terms of outright or prophylactic use is not recommended for twins. There's no difference based on a Cochrane review in rates of preterm birth prior to 34 weeks as well as various neonatal outcomes. There are two other meta-analyses out there that exist that basically have similar conclusions and then a randomized trial subsequent to those meta-analyses that also demonstrated no difference. So no role for VAGP prophylactically. However, with a short cervix, you could consider adding VAGP, but not a lot of data to guide you here. There's six randomized trials, all with different doses and compounding strategies, and when analyzed together, it demonstrates a likely reduction in preterm birth risk for twins and multiples with vaginal progesterone. Um, but then there are a couple of other meta-analyses that have not found significant difference here. So the jury's still out, but is anything to consider with your twins again once they get a short cervix. All right, so then moving to cerclage, we can kind of break it into three categories here. So prophylaxis, which is not recommended, so no risk other than just having twins, right? Just putting a cerclage in for the sake of the fact that they have a twin pregnancy. That's just not recommended overall. Um, ultrasound indicated cerclage. There's really not data that exists at this time to make a recommendation per ACOG. Trials do exist that are small and have not really found significant benefit overall. There is a meta-analysis out there that says maybe there's a benefit if cervical length is under 15, um, but again, ultrasound indicated not really a strong recommendation at this point. Um, rescue cerclages for twins. Again, when I was a resident. I remember thinking with twins being trained, so like you don't put cerclages or you don't put rescue cerclages in twin pregnancies, right? And that was like the camp that I feel like we fell into. But actually, there's a new randomized trial this past year of twin gestations with asymptomatic cervical dilation between 16 and 24 weeks that demonstrate a reduced risk of preterm birth before a variety of cut points from 24 to 34 weeks in those who received a rescue. Cerclage. It's a small trial, so there's limited data that exists, but you could consider a rescue cerclage in twins based on this data, um, and ACOG states that as well. So that's a major practice change as far as I'm aware. All right, and then of course we got to end with the pessary. Um, so there are two randomized trials that have looked at prophylactic pessaries in twins and a third looking at pessary in twins and short cervix that overall have not found benefit. There are a couple of other trials that are out there, but they're mostly limited by methodology or power, but also generally have not found benefit. Um, yet again, the pessary is not considered a recommended intervention per ACOG. One more question, Faye, for our podcast today. One thing that I feel like I get asked about is whether you should restrict activity to reduce preterm birth risk. This is a super common question that I get from patients. And they, you know, always ask, like, was it because I was doing too much that caused my early delivery? And the 
update in the practice bulletin directly answers this. So in a randomized controlled trial of 165 pregnant people found no relationship between coitus and risk for recurrent preterm birth, and a secondary analysis of a 17 OHP randomized controlled trial for short cervix demonstrated that preterm birth at less than 37 weeks was more common among patients who were placed on an activity restriction. And after controlling for confounders, preterm birth remained more common in those placed on restriction. So really, based on available data, activity restriction, pelvic rest is not recommended. All right, Nick, I think we have finally gotten to the end of this podcast about preventing preterm birth. Clearly, there are still lots of things that you know we need to iron out as a community of OBGYNs, but let's go ahead and summarize. Yeah, so we started off talking about why we cared about preterm birth. Again, the U.S. preterm birth rate as of 2019 was 10.2%, and that's actually increasing. Um, this is driven largely by late preterm birth, 34 to 36 weeks. The rate of early preterm birth prior to 34 weeks stands unchanged since 2014 at about 3%. Preterm birth rates is a sign of health disparities in our country, too, with non-Hispanic black women experiencing preterm birth at a higher rate than other racial or ethnic groups. Risk factors for preterm birth include things like a prior history of a preterm birth, as well as things like certain infections during pregnancy. Um, other things to consider are things like history of a prior DNC, multiple gestation, short cervical length, and also potentially a history of cervical colonization, especially if the excision is greater than 15 millimeters deep. Some modifiable risk factors to talk to your patients about include things like tobacco use, low maternal pre-pregnancy weight, interpregnancy interval of less than 18 months, or unintended pregnancy. And finally, the ACOG Practice Bulletin does specifically discuss race, and as we've discussed before, race is a social, not a biological construct, and so we should consider other factors such as chronic stress related to exposure to racism as a potential explanation for preterm birth risk in different races. We then talked about screening and intervention strategies in a variety of populations. We started out with a singleton pregnancy without any prior history of preterm birth, mentioned that cervical length screening is indicated to at least visualize the cervix at an anatomy scan and perform a transvaginal ultrasound if the cervix is suspected to be short. 17-hydroxyprogesterone or intramuscular progesterone is not indicated in this group. Vaginal progesterone is indicated in the singleton pregnancy without a history of preterm birth if the cervix is under 25 millimeters. Cerclage is possibly indicated with the stronger evidence existing if the transvaginal cervical length is under 10 millimeters or a cerclage can be placed for a rescue or exam indication. In terms of singleton pregnancies with a history of a spontaneous preterm birth, cervical length screening should be considered with serial cervical length screening from 16 to 24 weeks. 17 OHP as well as vaginal P can both be considered, though vaginal, vaginal progesterone may be of stronger benefit if there is a short cervix identified as well. In terms of cerclage, a history-indicated cerclage may be done if there is a history of painless cervical dilation leading to loss in a prior pregnancy, or if there was a prior cerclage in a previous pregnancy. An ultrasound-indicated cerclage can be done if there is a cervical length less than 25 millimeters, and you can consider this versus just vaginal progesterone. And the rescue cerclage is, of course, always available. Finally, we talked about multiple gestations. Cervical length screening should be the same as in a singleton pregnancy and should at least be visualized at the initial anatomy scan. 
17-hydroxyprogesterone is not indicated in multiple gestation unless there's a prior history of spontaneous preterm birth where it could be considered. Likewise, vaginal progesterone is not necessarily indicated outright for multiple gestation unless a short cervix is identified. Cerclages can be considered in multiples. Ultrasound indicated cerclages, there's really limited and inconclusive evidence, but rescue cerclages can be considered, and this is a significant practice change versus prior bulletins. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed this podcast today on preventing preterm birth, find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts, and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us on social media, on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at CreogsOverCoffee, or if you want to support the show, you can find us on our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee. You can find show notes for this episode as well as all of our previous episodes and our Rosh review question of the week on our website, CreogsOverCoffee.com. And if you want to correct us for something on the show or give us some ideas for next episodes, go ahead and email us, CreogsOverCoffee at gmail.com. So if you guys have been checking out our website, you might notice something new on each of our new episodes. That's right. With the start of every show notes entry now, we're going to be featuring the Rosh Review Question of the Week, where you'll get a multiple choice Creog style question. Check your knowledge on the topic that we review on the podcast. So both Nick and I used Rosh Review while we were studying for Creogs in residency, and we can testify that this is a great way to review for Creogs. Best of all, if you check out our website and look at the answers through the link provided, there's a discount code for a subscription to the Rosh Review Question Bank. Head over to our website, creogsovercoffee.com.